The church is where the Holy Spirit places people to renew their minds. Let me just, this isn't in your notes, let me just pause. If no one's ever told you this before, your life is going to remain spiritually unchanged if you're not vitally, consistently connected to a local church. Your life is going to remain spiritually unchanged if you're not vitally, consistently connected to a local church. I said spiritually changed. There's all sorts of changes you can make in your life without the church. You can quit smoking. Uh, you can go on a diet. You can try and be more honest. You can try and be a better husband. You can learn another language. You can take up ballroom dancing. You can do all sorts of things to improve your life. But you're never going to experience spiritual transformation meditating about Jesus on your sailboat. You have to be connected to a local church. That's a striking concept, I think. It's, it's vastly and rapidly evaporating in the North American church. Notice something else about the way Paul works. He rarely, you know, you got those, those big seminal verses, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Most people know them, or at least the gist of them. But, but Paul very rarely just leaves any concept hanging there as a mere concept. You'll see it over and over again in all of his letters, especially in the book of Romans. He, he constantly lays out some kind of a principle, some big doctrinal principle, and then always he'll say, now, here, here's how this works out. Here's what you do with this. All of his big statements are leading somewhere practical. And in today's text, Paul is still untangling our deepest spiritual need for renewed minds, unconformed to the world, untangling our deepest need and revealing what God plans to do about it. So, our deepest spiritual need, the mark, the mark of the degree to which our minds are still unrenewed, okay? The mark to which our minds are still spiritually unrenewed, is the tendency to, 12.3, it's the tendency to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. That is the mark of our unrenewed thinking. You and I may not think that's our biggest spiritual problem, but that's irrelevant because God, God says it is. So as God goes and sets himself to work, the work of renewing our minds, key to that whole process is getting us, it's in the last part of verse 3, God wants to get us to think with sober judgment, I'm quoting now, each according to the measure of faith that God has designed. Think about the wording of that. That word sober, it's pretty telling, isn't it? I take that to mean that on my own, on my own, I tend to assess my own self with the perceptiveness of a drunk. I'm not dealing with 
reality in my own self-evaluation. Don't, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but think soberly about yourself. Okay? So, so the mistake I make as I tend to evaluate myself, it isn't that I think I'm perfect. Elevating myself, thinking of myself more highly than I ought. How, how do we do that? Well, I don't run around with a mirror sort of preening over my magnificence. That's not the kind of pride Paul's talking about. He means, he means, I am more blind than I should be. I, Don Horban, am more blind than I should be about all that God still wants to do in my life. I'm, I'm blind to the nature of my deepest needs, and I'm blind sometimes to the means God wants to use to renew my mind. I'm blind, usually manifesting itself as resentment to people and situations that God may use. Blind as to how God wants to keep that renewing work moving ahead in the body of Christ. It's hard for me to see it accurately. I, I don't see the need that God sees in my own heart. And you don't see the need that God sees in your own heart. That, that's what Paul is saying. Don't, don't, don't miss this, but think soberly about yourself. So, to help keep the renewal of my mind moving ahead past my conversion, to keep the renewal of my mind moving ahead, here's what God does. He places me in a church. That's what we studied last week. He places me in situations where I will constantly have to apply what I read in his word about patience and forgiveness and humility. It's easy to read about that, right? It's when you have to forgive somebody. It's easy to read about patience. Lord, give me patience. Quickly. It, it's when you encounter in the church situations that require patience where God's saying, okay, we're going to, Don, we're going to work on this. We're not just going to read about it. We're going to develop it. So that comes, that comes in the body of Christ. The things I pray about, those things have to be worked out in the body of Christ. Now, in today's text, Paul, Paul's going to keep developing this theme a little bit. Point number one. You're thinking we should be way past point number one by now, Don. Don't worry. Point number one. What is the nature of the spiritual life God gives his redeemed people? What is the Christian life supposed to look like? We all pray, don't we? I mean... In our worship courses, in our songs, we pray for God to be glorified in our lives. We pray for God to look upon us. We, we pray about his embrace. We, we pray about being changed. We pray about the beauty of the Lord. We pray about being like the Lord. What, what, what does spiritual life look like in people? That seems like a reasonable question. What's it supposed to look like? We talk and sing and pray about the work of the Holy Spirit. 
We speak of being given eternal life, which must mean more than just going on forever. It includes that, but the nature of eternal life, spiritual life, what does it do? Of course, when we begin describing it, we usually begin by talking about ourselves. Well, spiritual life. I have been redeemed. I have been forgiven. I'm going to heaven. I have peace with God. Any number of sentences. So on, so on, and so on. It's all good, and it's all true. But is there something else other than just this, this package of good stuff that I got from God? And to make the point that there is something else, Paul begins his description of us And what spiritual life is supposed to look like. He compares our spiritual life with something very physical. He compares our spiritual life and the way it manifests itself. He compares it to something with which we're all very familiar. And that's in these 3, 4, and 5. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, so this is not a principle for just a few people. This is, there's no one in this room to whom this doesn't apply, right? When he says everyone. Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. That's not bragging. I already said that. It's, it's, it's not realizing what God still wants to do in my life. Not to think more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Not like a drunk. Think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For, as in one body we have many members, the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ. Remember Jack Hayford wrote a worship course, we used to sing it. We being many are one body in Christ. And individually, members one of another. Now, notice a couple things. Verse 3 kind of starts the ball of Paul's thought rolling by saying that renewed minds begin to think differently about themselves. We are not to think of ourselves the way we used to think of ourselves, that is, more highly. But we are to think of ourselves soberly. In other words, spiritual life manifests itself, first of all, with kind of a a humble, accurate self-think. But then immediately, after telling us how we're to think about ourselves as individuals, I mean, Paul doesn't even pause there. He gives the illustration of the many members of a physical body. And, and, and the message in this comparison really is clear. If in thinking about myself, I'm just thinking about me, then I'm not thinking spiritually. That's the test. I'm not getting the point of God's transformation of my life. And and here's how important all of this is. Do you ever ask yourself, why did God create us with 
physical bodies. He didn't have to. He could have created us more along the lines of angels. He created other kinds of beings that don't have physical bodies like we have. He could have made us that way. So if he created many other beings without physical bodies, why didn't he do the same with us? And I think one of the main reasons he created you and me with physical bodies is so we would never be very far from the actual meaning and goal of our redemption. So, in other words, we know, we know what Paul means about the members of the body being made not for themselves, but for each other. We ought to know that because we carry around bodies just like that. Which of your ten fingers do you consider expendable? Would you keep your right eye or your left? Is it your heart that's important? Or is it your lungs? And if it's your lungs, which one? And the whole point here is there aren't any good answers to those questions. And there's no good answer because you can't apply those questions to a body the way you can apply them to a collection of marbles. Every one of those parts in question is important because each part doesn't just exist for itself, right? Each part exists as a living member with the other parts. So, solitary life and health for a body part is impossible. I used to use this illustration when I would talk about church membership, which is coming up, by the way, in, in November. So, here's, here's my hand. I don't know how impressed you are with it. I think it's a beautiful hand. But there's a way I could make, careful, I could make this finger unforgettable to you. And that is, if you went after church on Sunday morning, you went to Swiss Chalet, and you ordered a bowl of chicken soup. And they brought it to the table, and floating on the top of your chicken soup was my baby finger. You know why you'd remember it? Because, listen, there's something gross about an unattached member. Think about the body of Christ. There's something gross about an unattached member. Jesus came and died and rose again to redeem you and me and give us eternal life. But the nature of that eternal life is illustrated in these very bodies that Jesus died to redeem. And here's what we learn. Kingdom life is like physical life. 
salvation is always a communal venture on God's part. It is never solitary. God doesn't save you apart from the church any more than your body is a functioning reality if it's just a foot and nothing else. And because God never wants me to forget that, he makes my daily physical existence depend upon a physical body where all the members have to work together or it's not healthy. Point number two. That illustration of the body explains how we tend to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Look at those verses again. We keep going a bit. For by the grace given to me, Romans 12, 3, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members... The members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are we, though many, we're one body in Christ and members one of another. So verses 4 and 5 are the remedy to the problem described in verse 3. In other words, the cure for thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think is remembering the body. The picture of the body defines the kind of pride Paul is talking about in verse 3. And the kind of pride he's talking about is the pride of independence. There are two kinds of spiritual pride that Christians can exhibit. Two manifestations of an unrenewed mind. A, first I can chart my spiritual agenda blind to my vital living dependence on the local church. And Paul has a correction for it. There's another place in the scriptures where he makes it even more pronounced. In 1 Corinthians 12, 18, he says, But as it is, God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If we were all a, singular, a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. See, the same idea. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Now, the thing is, the the parts of the body that Paul pictures here, they have no physical capacity. The hand has no physical capacity to say to the eye, I don't need you. The members of Christ's body do frequently act like they don't need the church for spiritual survival. And it's a huge, blind, arrogant mistake. And it's becoming increasingly common in North American evangelical. I love Jesus. I'm just, I'm not into the church. Can't do it. You can't do it. You've seen, haven't you? medical shows on TV where, you know, the 
vehicle pulls up to the hospital and there's noise and bedlam and everybody's jumping out and there's a cart and there's a container on a cart and they're racing it down some corridor to an operating room. Apparently there's a liver in there or something and they know there's only a quick amount of time to get that to the patient because it won't survive by itself. It won't, it won't survive. Did you catch it? It won't survive by itself. The parts of the body don't survive by themselves. They have to be attached. I said Paul's picture of the body is designed to expose two manifestations of how we think more highly than we ought. That first one is independence. Second, the delusion of my own preeminence. He, he does make it clear that all the parts are different. Four and five, for as in one body we have many members, the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, we're still, we're one body in Christ. We're individually members one of another. So, so if all the members had the same look and the same function, then we would have the problem of competition. If there was only one role, one job for everyone, we'd naturally compare ourselves with each other. Who was best at what they're doing? But that's not the case. He says we have different functions in the body, and you'd think that would solve the problem. But it doesn't. Now, instead of saying who does the job the best, now we have the tendency to say who has the best role. And again, the the picture of the human body is so corrective. And it's true. It's true. Some parts in Christ's body may be more prominent. They might be more visible. They might be more up front. And because of that, maybe we can make a fuss about them. Paul's illustration, should, it should give us pause. I mean, my nose, my nose is more prominent People may think, I have a beautiful nose. Did you see Pastor, I hear it all the time. Did you see Pastor Don's nose up on that big screen? It's, it's just a lovely, lovely thing. I can't believe it. Where would he get a nose like that? But you've never seen my liver. I've never had anyone come up to me in the lobby and say, boy, Pastor Don, that's a great liver you've got. But the truth of the matter is I could live longer without my nose than without my liver. That's the difference between prominence, my nose, and significance, my liver. So how do we apply all this to our church? Closing minutes. First, first, so important. Fight to your dying breath the modern North American Christian tendency to consider your relationship to Jesus apart from your commitment to a local church. It is impossible to do so. You hear it all the time. I mentioned it this morning. The witty repartee. Uh, you don't have to go to church Sunday night to go to heaven genius. 
Let me tell you what I know for sure. Get this. I know there's no Christian alive who has damaged his or her relationship to Jesus because he loved the church too much. There's not one on planet Earth. Never has been. Secondly, resist the temptation to either pride or despair by comparing your role in the body of Christ with someone else. Don't confuse prominence with significance. You have your own gift. We're going to look at it next week. And you're only responsible for your faithfulness with that. And everyone said?